Well, as Matt said at the beginning, today we're going to wrap up the Mustard Seed campaign. And uh, since I get to choose the passages of Scripture, I have chosen one of my all-time favorite stories. It is an amazing story. Like, it's one of my favorite stories, not just because it's so well narrated and told and all. I mean, you can almost just read it and get out of its way, guys. It's really well put together. But it's one of my favorite stories because it comes to me and it comes to you as believers in Jesus and it answers two of life's most fundamental questions. So question number one that the story answers is, who am I? You will get that unless I mess it up. It's always that possibility. Who am I? That's question number one. And then question number two that the story also answers is, all right, well, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing then? Like, what's my mission? Okay, if you miss that, I have totally messed it up. So look for it. It's found in Genesis chapter 24. It has four main characters. You're going to know the names of three of the four characters. You're going to know all about three of the four characters. The other guy, not so much. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to set aside, at least initially, what you know about those characters. I want you to take their names and put it on a shelf for a little bit. Because in order to see yourself in this story and to get your mission, what you need to focus on is the role that each character plays in the story. So, for example, Abraham is the first of these four main characters. Okay, well, you've heard of Abraham. You've studied the life of Abraham. You know a thing or two or maybe a thing or three about Abraham. Great. Hang on to that. It'll be helpful in about ten minutes. Right now, you need to know that this story has a father. And the father has a son who is a unique kind of son. He is legitimately a one and only in all of the world kind of son. His name is Isaac. You know some of his stories too. Helpful in 10 minutes. Not now. So the story has a father. The story has a son. The story has a servant. He's a servant of the father who incidentally is also a master. So he's a master to the servant. Now the servant's name is Eliezer. Probably you haven't heard of him. It isn't even indicated in the story that is his name. And this guy is awesome. Fabulously gifted. Incredibly capable. This guy is the guy that is Abraham, the father, the master's right-hand guy. This guy runs Abraham Incorporated. And just so you know, that is a major concern. This guy, Abraham, was wealthy like a king. And Eliezer... He ran the whole deal. Lastly, there's a bride. That's character number four. Her name is Rebecca, but she's the bride in the story. And it's the last two characters, really, that I want you to focus on most intently. The first thing that I want you to see about these last two characters is that they both are asked the exact same question that I'm going to ask you at the end of this message. So you ready? Here's the question. It's, will you go? That's it. And Eliezer is asked this first. If you know the story, at this point in the narrative of Abraham, Abraham is an old man. His wife has long since died. He's sensing the end of his days. He's accomplished everything he ever could have sought to accomplish in all of the Lord's missions except for one, and it's a big one. In the ancient Near East, guys, it was the duty, it was the privilege, it was the responsibility, it was the right of the father to choose a bride for his son, and that he has not yet done. So he calls his servant Eliezer into his office one day, and he says, listen, I need to find a bride for my son. And Eliezer says, hey, no problem. I was just down to the market. There are all kinds of amazing women in this town. It's incredible. And behind that, you know, my cousin Habib has this amazing daughter and she's beautiful and she's virtuous. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go round up about 20 of these girls and I'm going to send them to eHarmony.com and I'm going to make Isaac go there too. Everybody's going to do the personality assessments. We're going to look at the compatibility studies and then I'm going to bring the top five to you You get to choose the bride. We're done by 3 o'clock this afternoon. Take the rest of the day off. What do you think? He says, I think that's an awful idea. 
You can't do that. Why? You cannot choose a bride for my son, my one and only and all the world's son, from the Canaanite women, from the women of this land that we live in. And here's why. Because the Canaanite women were known to bring their idolatry into their marriage. See, from Abraham's people, from way back in the land of Ur, from whence he came, the women would adopt the gods of their husbands. And this isn't just any husband. This is the son of promise. This guy, legitimately, as I'll explain in a bit, is the hope of the world in his day. You cannot join him to a Canaanite woman. And Eliezer, listen, I'm an old guy at this point. Like, (laughs) you know, I can't travel all the way back to my family to do this. Eliezer, will you do this for me? Will you go? Before I give you his answer, I want to tell you this is not a little ask. This is not going to be a three-day or a three-week trip. This is going to be like a three-year round-trip deal. I mean, some of you who own businesses, you know, I mean, you know what it's like to get everything just in its right order so that you can go out of town for a week. Can you imagine for three years? Think about that. If this guy has a son and his son is one year old, when he returns from this trip, his son doesn't know who he is. And now he's four. We're not asking for a little bit of time. We're asking for a three-year commitment. Will you go, Eliezer? But it's more than that. It's comfort. I mean, I don't know. How many of you have ever ridden a camel? Would you raise your hand? A few of you? Yeah, there's a couple of us oddballs. All right, so here's the deal. I've ridden a camel a couple of times. If you've been to Israel with us, maybe that's where you rode it. Uh, Riding a camel is awesome for about three minutes. (laughs) Then that's it. About three minutes into the deal, you go, yeah, I think I've done this, you know? Where do I get off? Which is treacherous, incidentally, getting on and off. The thing is crazy. Okay, three years on a camel. This guy's not going to walk the same again, ever, probably. Don't you think? Where is he going to sleep? I mean, he's going to pull into towns and villages and occasionally he'll get a hotel room and maybe a comfortable, you know, bed or something. But I mean, you know, for the most part, this guy's going to be sleeping out under the stars, man, and not being a camper myself. I don't even think that's cool for three minutes. (laughs) Three years on the ground? Think about that. Three years on the ground with one eye open looking for bandits. His master Abraham is going to entrust to him a great amount of wealth. And it's going to be evident that he's a pretty wealthy man. He's going to have a little bit of a caravan rolling with him. And as he travels all the way to the land of his master, he's going to go through some treacherous territory, guys. There are going to be nights where they're taking night watches, looking out for the bandits for real. Risky. And he'll have to make a lot of good decisions. He's entrusted with the wealth for the purpose of paying the dowry of the bride. That's the primary purpose. I mean, yes, to get him there and to get him back with the bride. But but in that day, he would have had to pay a dowry to compensate her family for the loss of their daughter, for the services of their daughter. Because here's the thing, their daughter is not going to move like one town away and they get to see each other every other weekend. Their daughter is going to travel a year and a half away and in all likelihood, when they say goodbye to her, They will never see her again. A lot of risk. A lot of decisions to be made. And then, of course, the biggest risk of all is that this guy can get on the camel, ride 
a year and a half to get there, sleep out under the stars with one eye open, one eye closed, endure all the scary bandit scenarios, make all the right spending choices so he still has the appropriate dowry to pay so that he can purchase her, get all the way there, find her, it's the right girl, and she could say what? No. In fact, doesn't it seem like maybe it would be likely that she'd say no? I mean, think about what he's going to be asking her to do. He's going to ask her to agree to marry a man that she's never met. And then after traveling a year and a half away from her parents, so like if it goes sour, it's a long journey back, okay, to live out her days with him in a land that she's never seen. So, you know, like how many of you would sign up for that? How many of you would send your daughter off on that? I don't care how big the dowry is. It's a big ask. So he could get there and fail. Eliezer, will you go? He says, I will go. And then we read this in Genesis 24, beginning in verse 10. It says, then the servant, that's Eliezer, took 10, remember that count, of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master to fund his journey and to pay the dowry is the idea primarily. And now notice this, here comes his whole year and a half. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor, that's it. If I'm him, I'm a little offended by that, honestly. Like, a year and a half, all that sacrifice, I get that much ink. That's it. He arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, period. What's happening in this story in terms of this guy's narrative? It is moving fast. Oh, good grief. It is racing along. And so is mine. And so is yours. And you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is recognizing that and then living in light of it. Moses, a very wise man, says in the Word of God in Psalm 90, he comes to us and he prays a prayer. And I want you to consider the fact that he prays this. He says, Lord, you ready? Teach us to number our days. And why does he even have to ask that question? Because we don't do that naturally. That's why. It's against our nature. We don't think about the fact that it's flying by. And that someday it will end. And that in between then and now, we actually have stuff to do. We have actually a mission. Teach us to number our days. And then he speaks of the work of our hands. And the point of the prayer is so that the works of our hands don't die with us, but instead so that in this life, by your grace, in your spirit, with your people, we do something that endures beyond the end of our numbered days. There was a guy who was listening to a radio interview one time, and this guy was talking about that verse, and he said that um, he got one of these, you know, like actuary tables, and he figured out how long at least he was predicted to live. So like you're 36, you know, it says, oh, you'll live to 83. If you make it to 50, it says you'll live farther, I guess. So anyway, but he said, all right, so I'm going to live another X number of years. And he went to every place in his town that sold marbles, and he bought a marble for every day that he was calculated at least to live. And then, and I know this had to make his wife happy, he put them in these big plastic bins in his garage, taking up a bunch of space. And then every day at the end of the day, when he would pull in the garage, he'd get out of his car, he'd walk over to one of these bins, he would open it up, he'd reach down, he'd grab one of the marbles, he'd walk over to his trash can, he'd open it up, and he'd throw it in every day. That's wisdom. He's numbering his days. He's recognizing that it doesn't come naturally to number your days. 
And he's mitigating against it by forcing himself to go through this practice that says, hey, you know what? This day that I'm living right now is one of a number that's one day going to end. How did I do today? How did I live today? How can I do better tomorrow? Because I have a mission. So then the servant of Abraham took 10 of his master's camels and departed and taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And here's his year and a half. He arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And now here's the deal. He's, He's in the land of his master. He's amongst his master's people. The girl is here somewhere. He's in the right place. But how to identify her? And he does something then very strategic. It says he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening. Why? Because that's the time in the ancient Near East when women go out to draw water. So notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't roll into the city and go, good grief, man, I've been traveling for a year and a half on that stinky beast. I have been sleeping out on the ground every night, pretty much, one eye open, one eye shut. You know, it's been a year and a half. I'm going to roll into town. I'm going to make an appointment with a chiropractor. Then I'm going to get a massage. I'm going to sit in a hot tub at some resort for at least two days. I'm going to get a couple of good nights sleep. And then, you know what? We'll get up and we'll be about finding the bride. He doesn't do it. This man is intense. He's intense about his mission. And he's pretty amazing. He rolls into town, and the first thing he does is something strategic. He knows that the girls in the ancient Near East come to the well twice a day, in the morning and in the evening when it's cool. So he takes his camels and he has them kneel down outside the city by the well of water. The only well of water is the point at the time of evening when the young women go out to draw water, and then he prays because he knows This is a spiritual endeavor. And he says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. And I I just don't know which one is the bride. And so he establishes a test and it's a severe test. He says, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And who shall say, drink, and, and this is really the test, on her own she'll say, I will water your camels also. Okay, God, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And here's why that's the test. Because he shows up in town with 10 thirsty camels, and camels that are thirsty drink about 25 gallons of water each. So this girl is not just going to give him a little sip out of her jar, But she's going to do that, and then on her own, because he's not going to bring up the camels, she is going to voluntarily yank 250 gallons of water to water all of his camels until they are done drinking out of a deep, dark well. That would be tough for a fully grown, strong man. It's not a little job. So he establishes this severe test, and then he says, By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And then we read what? Because it's rushing. It's moving. It says, Before he had finished speaking, behold, and it's a word of sight. So Moses, who is writing this, wants you to see this this bride, this precious girl. He says, Behold! Who? Rebecca. And now notice her pedigree, because it's perfect. 
Before he had finished speaking, behold, look, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, so she has this perfect pedigree, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And now remember this description because it matters. He says, the young woman was very attractive in appearance. She was beautiful, but what else? She was pure. She was a maiden whom no man had known. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up, and then the servant ran to meet her. And he said to her, please give me a little drink a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And meanwhile, what is he thinking? He's thinking, okay, so far so good, but what about the camels? What about the camels? Well, we don't have to wait very long. It says, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water from your camels also, or for them, until they have finished drinking. And so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water again and again and again and again. And she drew 250 gallons of water for all 10 of his thirsty camels. And meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. And you're thinking, what are you worried about, man? I mean, she just yanked up 250 gallons. But I mean... Even though she's the right one, I think that's clear. Will she go? Will she, at the age of 14, 16, 18, will she agree to marry a man that she's never met, travel a year and a half away from her family before she even gets to meet him, and then live out her days with him in a land she's never seen? So what happens next? is that after she's done watering the camels, Eliezer starts breaking out the riches. And he lavishes her with jewelry. Bracelets, earrings, all kinds of gold things. And he says to her, do you think it would be okay for us to stay at your father's household? And she's looking at all this, and she's like, yeah, I think we can swing it. You know? So she says, we live right there. And so she runs ahead, and she finds her brother Laban, who's the head of the household at that point, and she shows him all the stuff, and she says, man, I've had the oddest encounter with this guy down in the well, but hopefully he'll be there again tomorrow, because I think it was worth yanking up 250 gallons worth of water, and I'm going to come with no bracelets tomorrow again. And so, can he stay with us? And Laban says, of course he can stay with us. And in the manner of a Middle Easterner, he welcomes him in, and he feeds his camels, and he creates a spread like a feast, like this Eliezer guy has not seen since he left the house of Abraham, and he will not eat. Why will he not eat? Because his mission is more important than any of his appetites, even one for food. It's astonishing. Verse 33, it says, Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And Laban, who's hungry, said, Well, get with it, man. Speak on. What is it? And then Eliezer tells the whole story. Well, I've come all the way from Abraham, and Abraham is a father and is a unique, one and only in all the world kind of a son, and it's the heart of the father for the son to have a bride, but not from the Canaanite women, but from among you people, in fact, from your family. So I traveled a year and a half on a camel sleeping out under the stars. The whole shooting match got here, went to the well, waited, prayed, established this severe test like there's no way she's not the girl. The only thing I need to know is, hey, Rebecca, what do you think? Will you go? Will you? We find her answer in verse 58. It says, and they, meaning her family, who has got to be freaking out, 
They called her and they said to her, will you go with this man? And here it is. She said, I will go. And she got on one of those 10 camels and with Eliezer started the journey all the way back to the father and the son of promise. And you know what they talked about, don't you? I mean, as soon as they hit the door of their town, don't you think? I mean, she was going, hey, since I'm in this at this point, uh, before the town fades out of, a, out of sight here, can you tell me a little bit about this man that I've agreed to marry and live out my days with? What would she have heard? Because we do know the stories, and now they're helpful. She would have heard about his supernatural conception right out of the gate. I mean, just start at the beginning. His parents had been barren all of their lives, and then past menopause. I mean, the Bible very gently makes it clear that they are way past both of them procreative years, okay? No children. He's 99. She's 89. And they conceive this boy. So she would have heard about his supernatural conception. She would have heard that supernatural conception had been announced in advance to his parents by angels. Kind of unique. She would have heard that, in fact, he was the one and only kind of a son in his day and that God had come to his father Abraham and said, listen, the Savior of the world will be born through the lineage of this son of promise named Isaac. This supernaturally conceived, supernaturally announced son of yours. And she would have heard that when he was 16 and his dad was, count it now, 116, God came to his father Abraham and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love. And I want you to take him on a three-day journey to the land of Moriah where Jerusalem was later built. And then when you get there, I'm going to show you what hill to climb. And when you get to the top of the hill, I want you to cut his throat. I want you to bleed him out entirely. I want you to lay him on some wood and light it on fire and consume his body in flame. And she would have heard how Abraham woke up early the next morning and personally cut the wood for the task. Why did he do that? He's got to go three days. Because he doesn't know when he gets there which hill God is going to point out. And he doesn't know if on top of the hill that God points out, there will be a sufficient amount of wood to consume his son's body in flame. His son is dead to him as soon as God comes and says, do this. That's it. And how long is he dead? Because they travel for one, two, three days. They arrive... And God says, there's your hill. What does Abraham do? He looks at the servants and he says, all right, here's the deal. You guys are going to stay here and the boy and I are going to go worship up on that hill. And then, and this is the key word, he says, we will return to you. And if you don't know the story and you're listening, you're thinking, we, we as in you and what, him in a jar or something? I mean, like, are you bringing an urn with you up there, Abraham? Are you lying? I mean, what is this? No, no, no. Here's what he means. We will return to you just the way you see us right now. For he has reasoned in his heart that God has promised that the salvation of the world, the Savior, would come through the lineage of this 16-year-old boy who was not yet married, had no children. And so he thought, well, God has told me this, and he's commanded me to sacrifice him. If I sacrifice him, God is still going to fulfill these promises. And here's how. He's going to raise him up from the dead. On what day? 
They travel one day, two days, three days. It's fascinating. So he takes the wood of the sacrifice and he puts it on the shoulders of his son. Read the story. And his son walks up the hill with the wood on his shoulders. And on the way, which tells you, by the way, that the son understands how sacrifices in those days were done, he says to his father, Abraham, father, we've got the wood, you know, we have the fire, you have the big scary knife. Okay, something's missing. Where's the lamb? And Abraham prophetically says, God will provide a lamb for himself, my son. And they get to the top of the hill, and obviously Abraham tells him what's coming next. And Isaac willingly lays his life down on the wood, and I say that because he's 16, his dad's a buck 16, so who's faster? Who's stronger? In faith that he will be raised from the dead, he lays down on the wood and his father raises the knife to cut his throat. And the Lord stays his hand. Look, this is a long camel ride. I mean, this is a year and a half deal. She would have heard all of these stories and then some. And so then it says that when Rebecca finally arrives, verse 64 I think this is so cool. It says, she lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac... Now, mind you, she's never seen him before. This is it. This is the first time. It's like she recognizes something in him. Though she has not seen him, she knows him. It should sound familiar. It's a Bible verse. It speaks of Christ. She's not met him. She loves him, nevertheless. She sees him, and she dismounts from the camel, and she says to Eliezer, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said of the son, It is my master. And so she took her veil and covered herself, because she's committed to this deal. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Now, why did he have to do that? There is an accounting to the son of the father for the way that the father's servants conduct the mission of finding the bride. And then we read, and it's the end of the story, it says that Isaac brought Rebekah into the tent of, his, of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. It's a great story. So do you see yourself in the story? Who are you? Well, first of all, you're the bride, you're Rebekah. If you're a guy, you just got to kind of get over this. There's no, you know, sexual aspect of this, okay? I mean, no, seriously, because I think it's a little easier sometimes for women to be okay with this idea. But it speaks of our union, a union that is pure, a union that is unbreakable, a union that is complete, a union in which we are one with the Son of the living God. We bear His name We enjoy His privileges. Everything that belongs to Him belongs to me and belongs to you through faith. Everything. Before the foundations of the world were even laid, God prepared a wedding for you. And just like Rebecca had no idea that was coming for her, you didn't have any idea it was coming for you either until what happened? Until God sent you His servant, which might have been your mother or your father or some teacher or a pastor or a youth pastor or, you know, some perfect stranger. I don't know who it was, but here's what I know. They invested their time, talent. Maybe they took you to lunch and invested some of their treasure too in bringing you this proposal and all the while utterly relying upon the Spirit of God to convince you to come to Jesus. And why? Because what's the offer? It is for you to join yourself by faith to someone that you've never met. And then after journeying through the whole of this life to get to him, 
to live out your eternal days in a promised land that you've never seen. It's a big ask. It's a big deal. And what are the stories that you've heard? Well, if you know the Christmas story, then you know of a supernatural conception. That is the ultimate supernatural conception story. I think we just have to say that. Not only that, you know that his supernatural conception was announced in advance to his parents by angels. You know that he is the true son of promise and that he is God in the flesh through that supernatural conception. God clothed himself in our humanity and became one of us. And you know that upon the will of his father and the promise of a resurrection from the dead on the third day, the true Isaac, the son of God who is Jesus, took upon himself the wood of his sacrifice, walked it up a hill, and willingly laid down upon it, and no one stayed his father's hand. That's the difference in the two stories. And why is that exactly? Well, the answer to that is simple. It's because we are not like Rebecca. We are not beautiful. We are not virginal. And we are not pure. But here's the gospel. We are made so through the sacrifice, death, burial, and resurrection from the dead on the third day of the true Isaac, who is Christ. We're made what we're not. He restores our beauty. And it's a wonderful thing. And by the way, when Jesus breaks out on the scene, how is he described? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So then what is he? He's the answer to Isaac's question in Abraham's statement. Father, where is the lamb? Oh, God will provide a lamb for himself, my son. Well, what did he give them up on that hill? Do you know the story? It wasn't a lamb. It was a ram. The question remains open until the Christ comes the true Isaac. So, first of all, you're Rebecca, traveling toward the one you've never met, but you still know, don't you? Never seen, but you love. But more than that, you're also the servant. You know, the Bible comes with all these different analogies to describe our relationship to God, and one of them is master-servant. Guess what? You're the servant too. And just like Eliezer, you've been given all kinds of things to be used for what end? Sure, yeah, to help you in your journey and all that. I get that. But what's the mission? It should be evident. It's find the bride. It's find the bride in your own family. It's find the bride in your office, in your school, in this community, in this city, and in the world. Our mission, guys, very clearly stated, is go find the bride and know that when your day is done, you'll give an accounting to the son, who no doubt, just like Isaac did with this faithful servant, will reward you will bless you for the faithfulness that He Himself has inspired. It's all of grace. And today, I think, is a great opportunity in that regard because today, for me at least, stands as a visible, tangible, palpable reminder that following Jesus and being a part of this community, this church, this school, this community means more than just, you know, coming together on Sunday mornings and seeing each other in the hallways and in meetings and sending our kids down the hallways of these schools, as wonderful and as rich as that is. It's more than that. It means more than finding a great community of people to do life with and who can pray with you and support you and help you and preach the gospel to you and walk together with you through difficult times and through wonderful times. They can celebrate with you. That's amazing. That's part of it. It means more than raising our kids together in a covenant community in which everybody in the community takes a vow alongside of you to raise them to know the Savior. It's all of those things, but it's more than that. It's a visible, tangible, palpable reminder of the fact that following Christ means going on His mission. 
That's what it means. And committing ourselves to do exactly that. And that's what today is. It's an opportunity to do that. To say, you know what? Yep, that's the mission. And I'm committing myself to it. So, you know the question. Will you go? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for um, the true Isaac, who is Christ. And we thank you for the way that he answered that question in regard to us. We thank you, Lord, that in love you looked down upon a people that um, did not deserve your mercy, did not deserve your grace, and nevertheless, you sent your Son into this world who willingly came who took upon himself our humanity through that supernatural conception, who lived the perfect life that we have not, and who willingly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world of all those who claim his sacrifice as their forgiveness, as the basis for eternal life and joy and hope and, Lord, everything else, laid his life down that we might have life eternal. So, Lord, we bless you for that. We are thankful for that. And we're thankful for stories like this that remind us of that and call us to live accordingly. Teach us to number our days and to use them missionally so that then when we're done with them, the work of our hands by your grace will endure. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.